0: Central.com.
1: Okay, let's get cracking, Pumimashiko. How are you, Pums? Hey. You managing there?
2: Uh, yeah, I'm stuck. Like,
1: <laughs> you know, you Ryan
2: at? came in here. He gave you a piece of paper. I know, no, What's no, no. on the piece of paper? Where's it's mine? It's uh, the story, story of, of Roger, Roger Jardine. Oh, it's the story of Roger
1: All right, Roger so let me start off by giving a little bit of a background here, and then Roger can fill in the gaps for us because people are curious about this man and where he comes from and what he's, what he's done. And he's got a very, very interesting resume, if I if I do say so. Uh, an anti-apartheid activist at an early age. He got a scholarship to study in the US, got back to South Africa in 92, became National Coordinator of Science and Technology Policy for the ANC, uh, based in their Department of Economic Planning. Leading up to the 94 elections, he worked closely with all the scientific institutions, including the CSIR, which you later became chairperson of, um, Agricultural Research Council, the Atomic Energy Corporation, big influence on dismantling our nuclear program, which I also think is fascinating. And we could talk about that for an hour or two, um, how we decided not There's to make- There's book. Yeah, oh yeah, there, there are books. <laughs> There's several books about this. Um, but at age 29, you were- Appointed Director General in the Department of Arts, Culture, Science and Technology that was in Nelson Mandela's government. That made you the youngest Director General in South Africa's history. You also then went on to hold positions in private business in Cahiso Media and Prime Media. I'm not going to say uh, that, uh, you know, because I, I know the media business that I'm a big fan of either of those companies uh, at, or was at any given stage. But I'm delighted that you were there at the time and that you were able to make things happen. But it is a great pleasure to have you here this morning because we're going to talk a bit about your political party. But first of all, I left out quite a lot in your CV. I mean, you've done an enormous amount in your life. Why on earth would you go into politics <laughs> and ruin all of it when you've done so well? <laughs> no,
0: thank you. Good morning. Thanks for Morning, me. Roger. Nice to you see know, you. the other morning uh, my wife woke up and she was scrolling through Twitter, and yeah. she found a tweet from someone that says, I was living my best life and then my man went into politics. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think it's a personal journey, right? You, For me, uh, certainly over the past two elections or so, just looking at where our country is heading, reviewing my own place in the world and what's going on around me, and just building up this view that we all need to, in direct and indirect ways, influence the direction of this country. And um, so last year, with the elections looming, this year, I went through the same thing again. And because of my family's rootedness in the, in, in the politics of this country and social solidarity, every election, we have a town hall meeting in our family, and we discuss the state of the nation in the garden and it's How big your
2: family you having a town hall? <laughs> no, no, it's hey, about <laughs> 30-ish,
0: 35-ish. Inter- intergenerational. Mm. Grandchildren, mm. our generation, the the elders. And um, and we talk about what's happening. And one year, we conducted a mock poll. And mm. it mirrored the national poll. It was very interesting. Oh, oh wow. It, it was exactly the national poll. Um, so it's sort of with that consciousness deciding maybe it's time to step out of the, the corporate world and, um, and see if I can lend a hand in some way and add my voice to what's happening. I think we all do it in WhatsApp groups and sure.
1: around the dinner table. You know, everybody thinks they're running for president in you know? their family. Um,
0: <laughs> and we all have strong views, right? And it's, and, and it's a safe space to share. But, but, but there's
1: you know. an element of destiny here because of your family's history in politics. There's also, as I understand it, there were a lot of people who you've worked with over the years who said, listen, you have to get in now. Yeah. It's time yeah. for you to stand up and be counted and make a difference yeah. and all of that stuff. Yeah. So I think that's all very honorable. But it's it, it sort of started a bit late last year in December. Is that enough time to campaign for these elections? A lot of people name recognition is important. Mm, yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I'm very I'm very mindful of that. Um I think also since I started on this journey, a lot has also happened and changes on the political landscape. And I think that as we head into electoral season, there's a very, in st- certainly in my own mind, the, call it the progressive opposition, also needs to start thinking about how it coalesces around a single idea for the election. So I don't think this is about a, any one person. We don't have a presidential electoral system here, right? Mm. You have to get into parliament yeah. and then get nominated, mm-hmm. etc. So, um, so I mean, if your then, party, if yeah. your if
1: your party uh, change starts now, mm. if you did end up with like three seats, you'd be one of the MPs.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: You'd have to go to parliament. I, I, you've you've been to parliament. <laughs> you know what parliament's like. You'd want to do that.
0: I I think I, I think that the first uh, point is what is the best way to show up at this election, right? I've been traveling around this country. Uh, you know, I was in Trebecha for a town hall. I was in Cape Town last week. I've been to Sharpville to meet, I went to a primary school there that's been without electricity for three years, by the way. And um, talking to people, which is a a refreshing change for me from the boardroom, just Mm. talking to people about their lived experiences every day, right? Mm. And the constant refrain is, uh, as you're saying, this is a new initiative. It came a bit late in the day. Um, And we can talk about you know, the late in the day aspect. Sure. But I do think you'll see a coalition, uh, the opposition coalescing more and more. There is obviously the MPC and that whole process that's been happening. And I think that's very admirable as we- You pre- guys are part of that? Yeah. No, we're not part of that. I mean, we- NPC so it's
1: admirable, but you don't ca- really care about
0: it. No, no, I think it's important. It just <laughs> it happened along the way, and then we we set up. Uh, we launched in in December. Would you
1: work with those parties? Absolutely, Okay.
0: absolutely.
2: Roger, for the first time this year, we're going to have independent candidates, and there's lots of conversation about many political parties. Why the party route and not as an independent? Um.
0: Remember the way, the way the independent party candidate system works, right? You, you get votes and then after a certain number of votes, um, it gets divided. Uh, we feel it's important to... So Change Starts Now was conceptualized as a movement. When you launched, right? it was a movement. A movement to, to get citizens actively engaged in the discussion about the future, and so, in my own mind, it was never going to be about one person. We have to bring people into this into this ambit. So, I I never considered an independent route because there are a lot of like-minded people who were looking for a vehicle and for a point to discuss the future of the country. So, it's that, not
1: that dissimilar, though, to what Herman Mashaba did with the People's Dialogue. He, he was trying to pursue the same yeah. course. It started as a movement mm-hmm. and. I mean, I I had to be reminded of this on Tuesday because we have very short memories. Mm. And it's also not your fault that ultimately in this country, everything becomes around personality politics. Mm. I mean, that's what's happening with MK, with Jacob Zuma as well. Mm. Mm. Right. So that's not something that you you're not doing this as some sort of uh, rush for glory. In fact, as I understand it, a bunch of people kind of prevailed upon you in the end to throw your hat into the
0: into the yeah. Ring. Look, I mean, for, is that right? So, 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 in my journey, right, I, I received a very interesting call about two weeks ago from someone I worked with 13 years ago, who said to me, "I wasn't surprised when I read this." So, it's been a combination of talking to people over many years in the community, in uh, professionally, and just a confluence of. My own personal sense of where where i am in my in my life right i i stepped away from uh, an institution that I was a part of for many years and uh it took me Which the of first round okay. it took me the better part right. of last year to decide um to add my voice to this and uh again i mean you refer to the fact that people invariably you know sort of uh, Congregate around an individual. Sure. Um, I don't think that my raising my hand to be part of the discussion necessarily follows that I'm campaigning to be the president. We don't have a presidential system. I do think we need fresh ideas in the room, new energy, and new ways of tackling the crisis in South Africa. And I'm part of that,
2: and I want to be part of that. The conversation about Various people coming to you to say you should put your hand up and you're going through a journey Mm. that brought you to the place where you did put your hand up is also something many South Africans speak about. And I think we've got PTSD from the Gupta years Mm. and the worry that many South Africans have, particularly about all these new parties Mm. cropping up. Is who who's paying those individuals are yeah. Yeah. and how you finance th- this particular journey? Mm. Are you willing to share with us who those people are for you and who finances your current journey? So we we will
0: publish uh, in terms of the IEC because we've registered as a party. We will publish who finances change starts now. Okay. I think it's important, and it's important for our democracy. The universe of donors, if you if you just take a close look, there's a core group of people who fund political parties in this country. And you'll see that for political parties, you cannot do this without finance. The issue when it comes to political party financing is are there strings attached? My personal view is anyone who pays their taxes and is a bona fide business, uh, can fund change starts now. The test on influence is going to be in the ideas and the manifesto of change starts now, which is coming out on Monday. And I would just encourage you to look at that and to draw your own conclusions on whether there's any link between funding and the agenda for well, this country.
1: I, yeah, I don't. I don't think that we need to like start. And, and Pumi, you're a big supporter of. Um, of of people entering politics and making a change themselves. So I think that that's Mm. great. And we'll find out, as you say, who your funders are. But there is this idea, and and a lot of politicians make hay out of this. Mm. They say, oh, there's this conspiracy of big business and that they've put you forward as their guy. And by big business, they mean you know the few that still survive in South Mm. Africa under these economic Mm. conditions. A couple of corporations that have outsized power and influence, perhaps. Perhaps they don't. We do know that they replaced – you know, a finance minister once by having a very late <laughs> night meeting with a president somewhere in Pretoria mm. after he tried to impose what was the guy's name? Do we oh. even remember?
2: Yes. Uh, after Desponder. Yeah. Remember
1: when they tried to force him on us? Anyway, yeah. so people have these ideas yeah. that actually the real levers of power are controlled by huge corporate interests and by very powerful business people. And if anything, the fact that you. You know, was suddenly proffered to us as a candidate, or your party change starts now was, mm-hmm. uh, makes people think along those lines. Like, who's who's funding this? Yeah. Where is it coming from? I don't think it's an unfair yeah. question.
0: No, it's not at all. And I mean, it,
2: no, and and I think you know. You, so you allude to new ideas being required yeah. in yeah. the room, and I understand that you're going to have on the nineteenth. I mm. think it says you're going to have Monday, your manifesto. Yeah. But I would like to hear what for you, um, your top three new ideas that you believe will change this country. Good. But
0: let me return to the question that you raised because I think it's important. The, it's very important. I think South Africans are jaded by our experience, Gareth, as you've pointed mm-hmm. out, um, and there has to be transparency and we will log our donor funding. That will happen. Um, in terms of South Africa itself, our state is in crisis. Uh, because of the situation with the national income statement being really poor, the budget of South Africa is under stress. We cannot provide basic services to people because of management issues. So where do we start? You may have seen that we commissioned a survey of 9,000 South Africans, a baseline survey across the country, urban and rural. And we spoke to South Africans to say, you know, how are you feeling? What are your priorities, et cetera? We cannot move forward if we don't address this issue of jobs. It's the number one issue that we find. Our survey, I think, was the largest in terms of the cohort of people we spoke mm. to. So the topic is jobs, 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 okay? We will be focusing, and everybody says we need to reduce unemployment, we will make concrete proposals on how we go about I get it. it. Roger. And Roger. Yeah?
1: This is, I think, your strongest card. Yeah, yeah. And, and I want to bring Canton in, who, yeah. who doesn't believe in change starting now. He believes change starts 15 minutes later. We'll <laughs> <They'll, they'll laughs> let you get away with it this time. Yeah. Um, but to, to go on this jobs thing, because yeah. sometimes you have to just dig a little deeper, right? Yeah. You've been in private business. You've run companies effectively. There's no doubt that you have a, a good, strong record in business. Unlike maybe like the president of the country who really just you know, benefited from BEE. So, in your case, how do you create jobs? Because governments can't make jobs. What things do we need to get rid of? What things do we need to bring in? If you were president tomorrow, how would you create jobs?
0: So, a few years ago, I forget how many years ago, I was invited to a workshop or a discussion on job creation. Hmm. In Pretoria, and my response was, you know, you don't make jobs in a lab, some way. Yeah, <laughs> right. That which is your point. So, when the national development plan came out, twenty thirteen or twenty twelve, there was a proposal in that plan which was widely received positively. Mm-hmm. That if you increase your infrastructure investment to GDP to thirty percent, thirty percent of GDP, you can reduce unemployment. I think, to around the 10% mark, okay? Today, we're sitting at about 14.5%. Wasn't
1: it implemented? Did it they was just not ignore it?
0: it? It was not implemented. Kenya is at 20%, just to give you a relative sense, right? So we've we've been talking, well, the government's been talking about infrastructure for years now. Because of gridlock and a whole set of reasons, which speaks to the dysfunction that we're living through, mm-hmm. that hasn't happened. And so it's it's a it's a serious trigger to get this jobs um, rolling. And that is something that I think is urgent in this country. Let's take load shedding. Okay. Load shedding. The uh, uh, other day I was talking to mainly sort of 18, 19 year olds. They've only ever known load shedding in their lives. If you think of it, Mm -hmm. they haven't had a life without load shedding. Now, If we fix this load shedding issues through all of the obvious things that have been out there, our GDP growth goes from about 1% languishing it is, to 2.5%.
1: By the way, did you see um, Sylvia Lucas in parliament yesterday (sighs) saying, ah, this load shedding. What is load? It's not not such a big deal, load shedding.
2: Because she grew up. Without yeah, she says the, I grew up with
1: candles. How dare the, you complain about low so, I'd,
3: I'd like to so, just climb in on, yeah. on this.
1: On, on can unemployment. Can I just comment on, on this thing? thing. Sure, yeah, sure, sure. Comment on this thing quickly.
0: Oh. So she should go and tell the guy who runs a shop in Soweto whose meat goes rotten, right? Because of ongoing low cheating, it matters. It's the most
1: you know insensitive thing. You could imagine a politician saying, and one of the opposition politicians said something similar. It's like a fat cat, and she actually is quite fat as well. This woman's saying, I don't care about load shedding. That's your problem. Because she's never really experienced it since she's been in politics. Because, of course, they have uh, different rules, you know, blue light brigades, <laughs> and someone else pays, and we're funding and, sub- uh, and subsidizing their lifestyles. But what an incoherent, unkind, insensitive,
3: disconnected person thing for a politician to say. Awful. But you see, Gareth, that's what happens. They get us so outraged that we spend time talking about that instead of (laughs) discussing the real. So so I think we're all on the same page on the jobs thing, right? Right. So just a couple of practicalities. Mm -hmm. So firstly, we have another increase in minimum wage coming up. So we have a situation where we have a massive number of unemployed people, but we're raising the cost of entry of people into the job market, so that's something that I'd I'd like your uh, comment on. Second, to your point in terms of uh, uh, investment in infrastructure, yes, again, you're absolutely right. There is that knock-on effect in terms of GDP. We have similar numbers that come up in terms of uh, technology. The rollout of data, for example, mm-hmm. to the masses immediately results in an uptick in terms of uh, of GDP. At the same time. We need to now fund all of this infrastructure development while we are borrowing money to fund social grants. So how do you actually reconcile all of these things? You know, we have a constant increase in minimum wage, which constantly raises the price of jobs. We have this need to invest in infrastructure, but the money is now being diverted to social grants and increasingly to paying interest on the national debt. Where yep. do we then get the money from? How do we actually reconcile that? That's Who enough question. That's enough from you, <laughs> Canton. Let no, the man answer.
2: 15 <laughs> minutes later, wants <laughs> to squeeze everything so, into three.
0: So actually, actually, that question is at the heart of how we take South Africa forward. Because, you know, the, the failure in the provision of basic services to people is a very serious thing. So some people would argue that the unlocking of quality of life has less to do with raising wages and more to do with providing public goods. What I mean is, when you go to a public hospital, which is where 90% of people get their healthcare from, you need to get a really good service there, right? The problem we have is that the balance sheet of South Africa Inc. is strained. So we can't afford all of these things, and then you overlay it with a highly competitive, uh, complex global economy, and our economy, which is also complex. And then you say, right, how do we fund these things? Now, let's take ESCOM, for example. The plan for ESCOM has been on the table for five years in terms of how do you deal with transmission, distribution, generation, etc. It hasn't been implemented. Transnet. Producers are not getting their goods to the port because of the, the logistics. And when it gets to a port, we can't do anything because the ports are bust, right? Mm. Currently, because of the crisis in in the Suez Canal, uh, shipping volumes are passing the Cape. We can't capitalize on that. So how do we and how do we fund this, which is really what your question is about. There seems to be a knee-jerk reaction when people talk about utilizing private capital to get these things done. With the Renewable Energy Program, for example, 210 billion rand of, of domestic and international capital was mobilized for these renewable energy projects because they were, they were conceptualized properly. So the way to deal with this is the state needs help. There isn't the money. The human resources have been hollowed out. Where do they happen to sit today? They happen to sit in the private sector. One of the important philosophical points about change starts now is that in the stressed environment, we need social solidarity. What do we mean by that? We mean that the extremely wealthy needs to extend a hand to the extremely poor. People are losing faith in democracy across the world. And you will have seen, if you may if you, if you, if you saw this um, uh, at Davos uh, earlier this year. There's a global debate uh, from wealthy people to pay more taxes, to fund services, to stabilize democracy because it's- I call it guilt. Well, but it's not sustainable. Think about South Africa. But even if we
1: we tax the very wealthy, Roger, at 90%, it's still not going to fill the coffers. Yeah, Proportionally, it's going to be tiny. Uh, I've got to just ask you about the minimum wage Mm -hmm. that Canton brought up. What do we think of that?
0: So, 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 if you look at uh, uh, a proposal on a special economic zone, um, you can choose one around the country. Uh, in Asia and other parts of the world, input labor costs are managed to make the output more competitive. We need to have a conversation in this country about how do we, how do we, restore dignity to people because, 1994, our. Parents and grandparents made an X and their dignity was restored. It has slowly been stripped away from people. And so when it comes to the minimum wage and issues like that, we have to have that conversation in the context of global competition, not in the context of just what the agenda is domestically. So I think we need to look at that.
2: Okay. You're going to like my statement because (laughs) Mm. I think Modi in India has done incredibly well, just speaking of special economic zones and looking at their local economy and where opportunity is to to kind of Mm. open up. he's For me, watching what he's done in the past couple of years has been phenomenal. And I think Mm. there are some... Um, conversations that are happening in India that we need to be having in this country. But I just want to come back to the issue for you, Mm. Roger, around more than just the policy and Mm. you know, and and what you Mm. because you spoke about the NDP, which is Mm. a current government policy that hasn't been implemented well according to you. Well,
3: hasn't been. Yeah, At sorry. All. <laughs> yeah, hasn't been implemented.
1: <laughs> Guys, Absolutely,
2: give them something. Tenzwalo is having a different oh, experience, but anyway, what? No, seriously. In what we have today, where are the levers that you believe can be low-hanging fruits that can be pulled to to unlock some of South Africa Inc., as you call it, potential today? Okay, but that's sitting there. Yeah, the space. No. But
1: good question. But again. Minimum wage. We haven't, like, got an answer. We need an answer <laughs> on this. I mean, I'm not, I'm not being difficult about this, Roger, but it's important. You think it's a
0: problem? I think it's a, it's a problem. Look, the, the debate around minimum wage is a debate. People need a decent wage in this country. So the issue is… But no one's
1: following the rules anyway. Because right? someone from Malawi will, pay, will be paid uh, less. Someone from Zimbabwe will, be, will take less. And then our government thinks we're all following the minimum wage rule.
0: Yeah but that's that you're raising a different issue right because i mean the the bottom line is where do we peg wages to make us competitive
3: my point is yeah. is it our job to be pegging wages and i'm making the case and you know please challenge me mm. on this mm. i'm making the case no it's not government's job to be deciding at what price people should be selling their labor very simply because there should be a question of willing buyer willing seller in this market There's an example that we've used and we've talked about on this Mm. show quite Mm. frequently. You have a situation where you have a person, let's say in Tembisa, who is now on a first job. It's a minimum wage job, but she's a single mother. She has a child at home. In order for her to go to work, she needs someone to look after the child. There's a person down the road who's willing to look after the child for a thousand rand a month. In terms of our laws, she's not allowed to hire that person a thousand rand a month. This, to my mind, is just patently immoral because you are preventing a situation where people are able to achieve the dignity that dignity that we are talking about. So, to my point again, I'm saying that minimum wage is fundamentally immoral because it removes agency from people to decide at what level they are willing to work. No one is forcing people to work for a particular wage. But I'd like you to address
0: no, this. No, I Look, I think the issue of minimum wage is a global issue, right? The U.S., uh, there's a, on every election, there's a discussion on minimum wage across Europe, et cetera. And I'm trying to remember who was it who said you can have a free market economy, but you can't have a free market society, okay? In South Africa, we have gross inequality and we have gross poverty. I mean, I'm just stating the obvious, okay? The question in my mind is, and and this is the issue that you're raising, is, and you saying there should be a free-for-all, basically, and I'm saying to you, I think we need to have this conversation in the context of are those things making us more or less competitive? But to just have a free-for-all, I'm not so sure that's the right way to go. To to overcorrect on the other side as if we're living in Sweden or Norway is not the right way either. So I don't think it's as simple as that, quite frankly.
1: Okay. So... In the economy, because this is, is again, an area where I think you you have a lot of uh, experience and you can bring that to bear in a positive way. You you mentioned how all of these uh, well-thought-through plans, part of the NDP, for example, was to activate certain things in the economy Mm. that would have made a difference. How… I mean, if it's execution, how would you make sure that that execution is done properly? Because catered deployment has been fingered as the the big reason that so many things just get lost in translation, that the best policies possibly formulated Mm. can't be executed properly because the people who are meant to execute them are incompetent. Mm. Do you think that that's an issue or do you think there's something else going on?
0: So I think catered deployment has an evil twin, (laughs) okay? So it's definitely a problem uh, and it's something that should be done away with but it has an evil twin, and that's the way procurement has been handled, Mm. okay? Public procurement. Right. Governments around the world have preferential procurement to shape outcomes. It's not a new thing globally. What has happened here is it has degenerated into a situation where people get huge contracts, say to provide water infrastructure, whatever, roads. They have no capacity, no skills, Uh, we give them the contracts, we call it inclusion, and then we forget all the people who've been excluded by the failure to provide those services. So I think those two go together in terms of the provision of basic services. So where would we start as change starts now? We have to get the best and the brightest in this country to be at the helm of these things. What we've done up to now is... There's a a practice in government that originates in the middle of the past century. You have your policy, then the DG refines it, takes it to the cabinet. The cabinet opines on it and agrees on it, and then we all think the job is done. And that is why we have a policy jamboree ongoing and no implementation jamboree. So what we would do differently is to focus on project management and delivery or enablement, which is a huge um, focus in any private business. How do you get things done? Hmm. And how you get things done is, you get it done by having the right people who know what they're doing to get things done. I think the public service, uh, there are basically thousands of people there who join the public service because they want to do good. And very soon they are strangled by an inefficient top layer uh, that 's been deployed there, and then they 're frustrated i 'm not i 'm generalizing, but generally that's the that 's the way I see it so I think it's very important that we deal with the skater deployment issue urgently and that we also deal with the way we manage procurement in this, especially for our big public projects
2: so in terms of i 'm going to ask my question again mm. because it 's a long time yeah. since i 've asked it. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> today with what, what <laughs> where we sit the quick wins and the easy levers for you are ah.
0: so the quick wins and the easy levers is firstly we have to deal with the balance sheet I would bring in I would mobilize private sector capital what are the two big elephants in the room or what, what is the elephant in the room in South Africa today what's draining our national resources today, SOEs, because of the way they've managed, there's hundreds of billions of debt there. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the spectre of a default or seeking more debt. So, how do we solve that? Okay, I think that the quick win is to bring relief to that balance sheet so that the government can look after its people, and the way to do that is to mobilise private sector capital for ESCOM and for Transnet. This isn't a new idea, it just has to be done. So let's take Transnet for example, okay? We all know logistics and ports, there's a blockage there. People can't get the product to, to market. And as a result, they're taking strain. So I would start there, we have to fix that immediately. And, and what is the knock on effect of that? Jobs. Mm.
2: But Cyril, one of the very first things Cyril did when he came into into government was he held a presidential summit investment, exactly doing exactly what you're saying, unlocking private sector capital for infrastructure spending happened. in southern. And he's not had one, yeah. he's had four since yeah. he's been. So he's done that and we have not seen the dividend. How is what you are suggesting different from what yeah. Cyril has done? I'll
0: tell you why it's different. I'll tell you why it's different. We do not have the encumbrance of a dysfunctional party machine where you have to go and negotiate your your way through a myriad of issues. And so I think the big difference is the ideas on how to get out of here have been around. They just need to be done. And for a whole range of reasons, they are stuck in the system. And they're stuck in the system because we have a highly dysfunctional government where things don't get done.
2: So it's not new ideas, as you said at the beginning, it's just doing what's on the on the agenda, just making it happen. So well, it's not new ideas. No, no, no.
0: I'll tell you where, where we will bring some new thinking. We we will actually quantify what we think the value uplift is. It's not a generic let's invest in infrastructure. Okay. We've actually looked at where do we actually intervene. Some of this is in our manifesto coming out next week. So I'm, I'm Sure. I want to save Pre-empting it for the I want to bit. save it for the big sure. reveal. But um, can I give you another example, okay? Public hospitals. People go to hospitals for healthcare. ninety percent do. Why do they have the experience that they have? It's not rocket science. I mean you, you asked me, why did I step away from what I was doing? I think in part it was just a frustration with looking around for years and I don't want to make it sound like an easy fix, but it's not rocket science. No. It doesn't have to be this way. We are just stuck in the system. So what are the what are the key things? I said jobs, I think that will be an infrastructure led thing. ESCOM, why hasn't ESCOM gotten its act together over the eighteen years or so? in the lifetime of a person going to university now, when we know what the issues are, right? Mm -hmm. There have been numerous, numerous discussions on how to get ISCOM out of its its situation. There's a slew of measures, about six of them, getting more rooftop solar. The president mentioned the transmission grid on Thursday. That's been around forever. Why doesn't it happen? Getting a stable um, energy supply. If we do all of those things, all of those things, It will take three to four years to solve Mm -hmm. load shedding. Okay? I don't think it's wise to tell South Africans we are almost out of load shedding, we threw the worst, etc. Those things have to happen. And what is different is we will get it done because it is just stuck. Okay, so we
2: agree. It's not necessarily new ideas, it's just project managing what's in the system. You know, Roger. We we will have a new we will have a new idea. Before you go, I do wanna ask this question, Roger, because you have mentioned healthcare Mm. two or three times in this conversation. And as we know, Cyril is looking for a pen to sign NHI into. What's your view on NHI? So
0: So on New Ideas, we will have (laughs) new ideas in our manifesto and you'll see that. So NHI, uh, it mustn't be positioned as being pro or against universal health coverage. A society has to look after its people. This proposal, which is masquerading as healthcare reform, wants to aggregate healthcare funding, about 600 billion rand, into an SOE type structure. It's not going to work. So what we would do, is we would focus firstly on fixing our public health care system, which was once an amazing network of teaching, learning, training, and care. It's been decimated for, all, for reasons we all understand. So we think rather than tinkering and introducing a new moving part into the state, let's fix our public health care facilities. That would be our, our approach to that.
3: How do you fix it without the ability to fire people who don't perform? And the very specific example I'll give you is the case of Barra. So I had a family member who was deployed mm-hmm. to try and fix Barra for a period, and he was acting chief executive officer out there. The very simple thing of him trying to discipline nurses who were sitting and sipping on their tea while you had patients who – were pushing on their buzzers, desperately calling for help, and the nurses were completely ignoring them. At the point at which he tries to actually institute disciplinary action against them, he gets up against Nehawu, the the union. Um, He ends up, as usual, being the person that's last to leave at night, goes down to his car, finds his tires have been slashed. It's a gangster world out there Mm. because of the unionized environment where you cannot discipline people for not doing their jobs. And this is something that cuts across the public sector. This comes back now to the question of our labor laws, where the ability of people to be able to fire non-performers is severely restricted in terms of our labor laws. So against that backdrop, injecting money into the scenario is not going to help if you can't actually fire people. For non-performance, so again, you know, how do we go to address that? But let's park that question for now because I, that's too much minutiae for us. No, to no, go but into. I want to answer it. Okay, I, uh, let him answer uh, it. I want sure. to answer. Sure. I want right. to answer it because mm.
0: I I think we we cannot accept some of these things as as normal. Sure. Right, and it's all mired in the political management of this country, and so again, I don't want to trivialize the fix. Okay. But the idea that so so by the way also know, know a young newly minted very enthusiastic doctor who's working at that hospital and getting his stories about the experience of the the dysfunction there right so I think these public institutions whether it's a hospital or anything else that management is breaking down because of a general breakdown in the political management of this country where, th- where anything goes. And then people feel that there's no recourse. You know. So you can even have a situation where a porter can tell a doctor, give me 10 rand or 20 rand, otherwise this patient will stay right where, here where they are. So I think it's all tied into a, a larger narrative on where we are in the political management of this country. And that's why we need to change it. And I think if the messaging from the center is we don't condone this stuff, we don't we don't uh, just let it slide, it starts to shift the culture in the workplace so that the public service becomes the public service. So I mean they and the ample examples of this. You can choose a home affairs office, you can choose anything, but I think I think it's all in the management of the country.
3: So Roger, it sounds to me right now um and, uh, uh, you know, obviously you're going to have strong views on this. Yeah. But right now there's not much that differentiates what you are saying from what the DA is saying. Essentially they're saying we keep the uh, the big state, we keep a lot of the framework in terms of the legislation that we currently just have. Make it more we, competent. Just, we just do it in a more competent level. So what's the differentiator then between what you're trying to do and what the DA is trying to do? What what sets you apart?
0: No, so so let's take another example. Okay, there are any number of parties out there who have their own ideas. Okay, let's take the issue of crime. Okay, and my my departure point is is very simple. I think when we have political discussions in this country, we tend to start with well, is it pro-capitalist or is it socialist? We give it labels, okay? My, my starting point is what is the best solution, okay, for this country? And then you can add a label if you want to. So if, you, if you're looking for a political texture to what we're talking about, it's more of a social democratic texture than anything else. So on the issue of crime, globally, crime is local, okay? Mm-hmm. Crime is a local thing. It doesn't help if you're in your township or your suburb and you don't know who the local station commander is and if you go there, there's a recourse to Pretoria. Okay, So I actually support a conversation around how do we localize crime fighting and crime prevention. It is It is not necessarily linked to wanting to unravel a unitary state or anything, but it's how do you best deal with that situation, okay? I think coming back to your DA question, our manifesto will answer that, okay? I think we we are developing a view of South Africa based on the lenses through which we see it, not through which any other party sees it. Where there are overlaps, I mean, for example, I mean, you mentioned this earlier, uh, the current president talks about infrastructure all the time. Well, we talk about infrastructure all the time. So maybe we're similar to the current government. So there will be similar views on different areas. The the difference, I think, is that we are focusing on the fix. And we want to differentiate ourselves on the fix that we're going to bring to this thing. Because we know where the right people are. We think we can mobilize them. We believe we can mobilize them. And where there are overlaps in terms of thinking, then so be it.
1: You're speaking (laughs) Canton's language. He just wrote a book called How to Fix (laughs) South Africa. Well, this This is is a question
2: I'm asking um, all the various people that are coming to to speak with us. Mm. What are your projections in terms of the election and how you are mobilizing? What are the numbers that you are projecting you can get?
0: Yeah. Yeah, so, so we, it's early in the day for us. We've just started, uh, we'll start doing our own polling. Um, I do think as the elections loom, there is a conversation to be had amongst opposition parties. I mean, currently the MPC says they will run the election on their own and then they'll meet afterwards, okay? The political landscape has changed in this last two months or so in South Africa. And so I think there needs to be a conversation on how we enter the election, pre-election and post-election. So at this stage, I don't have a number for you. Suffice to say, we are getting out there. We are spreading our message. Our own research before the MK party <laughs> was formed uh, was that the ANC is at about the 40% level and, um, and we, you can find the research. We, it was published in uh, another publication last Monday. Uh, we've been doing, in addition to our 9,000-person um, research, we've also been tracking the polling as well. And we have a good idea of where we need to be in terms of maximizing um, our results. So uh, it's early days for us, but we'll, we, we're developing a view on that.
2: And what's your your... Message now that we are all talking about Tinswalo has been <laughs> 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 what, are, what are you saying to Tinswalo to get her to vote for you? You know,
0: I'm saying to Tinswalo, there's a lot of um, disappointment and disillusionment on the ground. We need to weigh the consequences of how, what we do on election day. For many people who voted a certain way, there's been an outcome. To carry on this way, uh, and you asked me earlier, why, why did I step forward to add my voice to this? I think if we don't have a major shift in this election, we're gonna have a very different conversation in 2029 if we have more of the same. So to swallow, I say, <clears throat> exercise your vote, Uh, if Tinsualo is a graduate who can't find a job and I've met many Tinsualos of that sort of uh, profile and I've said to them I've seen the way learnerships I'm going to use one example I've seen the way learnerships work in, in, in the corporate world you bring in 100 people ideally they should be absorbed into permanent roles businesses aren't growing so maybe 40 get a permanent job so swallow and that generation have to exercise their vote in a way that clears the runway for them. And so I'd say to them, choose change. In fact, we picture an on-ramp to a highway. We're saying choose the change lane because the change lane involves jobs. We have ideas on how to deal with crime and security, specific ideas. A lot of people say crime is a problem. We have specific ideas on how to deal with that. And young people have to be politically engaged and not look up to older people uh, only. If you look at our generation in the 80s, I mean, uh, the, the chairperson at Change Starts now is Murphy Marobi. He was 25 or 26 when the UDF was set up, okay? Um, I became a DG at 29. I think people must take their future into their hands and help to drive where we're going. So I would say to Tinsualo and others, the future's in your hands. Don't stay away from the polls. Yeah. Go and, and vote. Go and vote and vote for change.
2: It's an interesting thing that you bring up about Murphy Me, mm. yourself and yourself and, and where, others, you, yeah. where you were mm. at the time when change was mm. desperately needed in this country. Why have you taken the route of not becoming a mentor to today's Matthew morobe to Ed Dinduolo and say, here's an opportunity, we're going to back you, we're going to support you, but this is the face of our party. Why is it, old guys?
0: So so we've positioned Change Starts now as an intergenerational movement. So we have lots of young people in our, uh, in our party, and... Um, and we've all mentored young people over the years. I think your question is specifically in this political context. Uh, it is something that has to happen, and we are doing it. And when it comes to young people, we should intensify our efforts and do more. So we are working in partnership with young people. So uh, uh, my chief of staff, Moipone uh, Monatani, from Orange Farm, she's 33 years old. I work with her every day. And uh, she's amazing. And we can have that um, back and forth around the future. So it's an intergenerational thing. It's not just the old guys.
3: Okay. I want to address the question of the 80%. And the 80% are the people who right now have no stake whatsoever in our country. You know, so we've got a middle class that we struggle along, but we do reasonably well, all things considered. And that's the 20% that keeps the economy ticking over. But the 80% are the masses who continue to vote for the ANC simply because... Or don't vote. Or or don't vote at all, as the case may be. A very good example that was raised yesterday, guys, I don't know if you followed the story, that in KZN there was a $2 billion mining um, operation that had to be put on ice because the local community refused to allow it to proceed because of the fact that there were um, burial grounds and all mm-hmm. of that type of thing that would be disturbed. And from their perspective, they, they have no incentive whatsoever to disrupt their way of life in the greater national good. We know right now, and you know, to your mm-hmm. point of capitalism versus socialism versus social mm-hmm. democrats and so forth, trickle down doesn't actually work anywhere in the world. How do we actually translate everything that happens? Because right now we speak around the 20% of the economy. How do we translate the benefits of what happens there to a meaningful improvement in the lives of the 80% that then gives mm. them a stake in actually recognizing why it's important for me to give up the place where my ancestors are buried in order for there to be a mining project that's now going to benefit the country as a whole? There isn't this connect. Mm. How do you tap into that mindset? Because I can't see us growing as a country unless we're able to bridge that gap.
0: But I think that's linked to what I said earlier about a free market economy and a free market society. People cannot see in 2024 that 80% are struggling to see the benefits of growth, of democracy, uh, and essentially people are on the outside looking in. And I think it's that disillusionment and isolation that brings people to a point where they say, "Okay, here's a two billion rand project. What's, it, how's it going to fix my clinic down the road?" And so, and again, I don't make this sound like it's easy, but we're not joining the dots, okay? And if you if you run a big successful business and you feel that you're an island and that you're just going to focus on the lowest wages possible, the maximum output, and not link the dots between the community down the road. I've had to, as a CEO, I've had to make choices about a business in a tough economy where we have to retrench people, okay? Now, and in one, in one instance, I actually asked my colleagues, I said, okay, now, the, I think it was 100, 150 people in lower paid jobs living down the road. Now, if we retrench those people, what happens socially around this this factory? Okay. If we look at two or three highly paid people, which probably equal (laughs) a big number of, of people, how do you balance that? And I think it's a mistake to say, this is the private sector, this is the public sector. And that's why, in South Africa today, if we do not have social solidarity, if we don't start thinking that we're all in this together, right? So so in that mining, that project you're talking about, usually there needs to be a social plan in, for the surrounding community, okay? When a community is that alienated from a situation where clearly they'll get jobs, they'll benefit, etc., it just speaks to the, the isolation that people feel from all the stuff that's happening around us, and we have to fix that. And we have not talked. This is another thing that, that worries me. When last have we talked about who we are as South Africans? We've, we've, our, our dinner tables and our WhatsApp groups have been filled with tenders, state capture, corruption, legitimately so. But we don't talk about who are we as South Africans. What do we stand for? How do we show up for each other?
3: I'm and chuckling because that's the very I first chapter Roger, in my book.
2: I think Roger's in the same WhatsApp group as, as me because no? this is a conversation that no, but, was happening in the I, WhatsApp group no, But you, you know what yesterday. I think? Yeah. And Padiru yeah. Khotla, yeah. the former state yeah. yeah. um, stat- yeah. statistician Statistic general, general, yeah. general yeah. yeah English, yeah has, has a very uh, fascinating view about yeah. the identity of South Africa. And precisely mm. that, how because we, we haven't, Concretize this, or we have stopped talking about it. It has led to a lot of the veering away of what social cohesion can be, and what a um, shared mandate for a government looks like for everybody.
0: And when we talk about social cohesion, I have found we tend to talk to each other (laughs) where we basically socially we need to talk to people that we have differences with. Yeah. So we can find each other. But we've all sort of it, it looks like the as, as in the rest of the world, for a whole and this is a subject of a whole another show of yours but this uh, fleeing into silos into silos and yeah. you know, it's, it just seems to be on the rise, and it gets worse in a situation like ours, where there's inequality and poverty and people feel on the outside. And if we don't fix this, ASAP. We're going to have a different so how, conversation. How, how do
1: you think we are? You asked who are we and what do you think of when you think of the best of South Africa? Because I'm, I'm interested in that. I like that line of questioning. I like that line of thought. What, what could we be if this country was run effectively? Let's say technocratically. Let's say we just made decisions based on the data that got us to a better place economically and socially and politically. Put all of that aside, what do we look like in your best outcome? I mean, if if you and your party Mm, ended up mm, in charge, what mm, would you really like mm, to see five years from now?
0: I think, um, and this is a conversation that I was part of years ago, South Africa is a very diverse country. And, you know, this whole, so we, at various times we talk about identity and, who are we, etc.? It's
1: in our motto. Right? Unity and yeah, diversity. In diversity. Which doesn't really yeah. mean anything.
0: But I think we should first of all embrace our diversity. People speak different languages, eat different food. It's it's a tapestry. It's beautiful. I think we should focus on what is our South African consciousness. When we say I'm a South African, what do we actually mean? What are we how do what do we think of each other as South Africans? what is our national aspiration as South Africans, whilst allowing us to have that diversity of culture and language and food and all of those things. And so when I think about five years hence, I mean, isn't it amazing whenever a South African achieves something, we tap into that consciousness fleetingly. Mm-hmm. Then we all sort of stand up and we, we're good with it. Well, and then so we're
1: so, so desperate for a good story. Right?
0: So, so I think we need more of that conversation. We're all South African, we we diverse, but as South Africans, this is what we stand okay,
1: for. Okay, but not to be unkind, yeah. you brought up diversity, so yeah. by, by asking what South Africa is, who we are, you've just told me we're all different.
0: No, 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 no. Diversity doesn't speak to different in a negative uh, connotation, okay? It's, it's true, I mean, we have a myriad of official languages, okay? There's some dynamics around the country. We should be able to enjoy those traditions that we come from without feeling that we are less South African than the other. So all I'm saying is
3: we need to work towards a South African consciousness. How do you do that with BEE in place? Do you get rid of BEE, for example, as one of the things that you would do? Because yeah, you faced
1: that from you know, being part of our 94 government, yeah. in effect, and then on the private sector side too. That's a good question. What do you do with that?
0: I think our problem when it comes to that is a problem of political economy, okay? Because you can get rid of BEE and then you have a different structural problem with the economy and you still have people left out. So I think it's it's more complex than just getting rid of BEE.
3: But you just use poverty as a marker. Yeah. So you empower everyone who is below a certain poverty threshold. And the overwhelming majority of those are the 80% of the population who happen to be overwhelmingly black. So it's possible for you to, do, to fix the problem without using a racial criteria. So why keep it in place?
0: I think that the... Okay, let's, let's look at the issues around the involvement of black people in the economy of this country. We've made immense progress. Uh, the question I think where we're heading to is a, is a BEE 2.0 because this, this round of BE clearly has had negative consequences in large measure because if you look at who has come in, it has tended to focus on a few people.
3: But Roger, you know, yeah. just you know, to focus on yeah. the, the heart of my question – it's still fundamentally racism because it's saying that we're applying a racial criteria. Eventually, we're going to get to the point of a pencil test because we no longer have a Population Registration Act that says what we are in terms of our race. Right now, we're required to self-identify to the point around how do we build a cohesive social consciousness at a national level? How can we do that when we well, have a society I, yeah, that says well, some well, what of is, us are What does B2.0 look like? How would it be So,
0: better? So how do you... How do you thirty years into democracy with um and I don't want to get into a conundrum of, of blaming everything on a party, I think we beyond that. Um countries around the world find measures to include people in the economy and in the corporate world. Okay. So I think it's too early to wholesale say let's scrap this or that, because either way it's gonna impact on social cohesion. The question is, how do you carry on this journey um, in a way that doesn't breed that kind of division? What, what has happened is, a few oligarchs have emerged, okay? You know, in 2001, uh, I ran Kahiso Media, hmm. and we won <laughs> that year, the top empowerment performer on the JSE award, okay? And I spoke to my chairman, Eric Malobi at the time, and I asked him, Uh, okay, I'm going to accept this speech. What should I say in the speech? What would you like me to include? And he said to me, you can say whatever you want to, just remember one thing. The BEE project has to be linked to poverty alleviation. It can't just be about building a balance sheet for a private individual. So when I talk about BEE 2.0, that's what I'm talking about. How do we how do we look at the exclusion of people um, in this context and how do we deal with that? But to carry on the way we are. And this preferential book procurement issue that I mentioned earlier, um, my personal view is it's, it's the original sin in the dysfunction around service delivery. Okay? Now, some people will argue that's BEE. Okay? But it's not BEE if it's not providing services to people. So I think that's the the lens through which I would look at this.
1: Pums, you got the last one.
2: And uh, it, I'm I'm so conflicted because I want to ask a question, which I'm going to ask it anyway. Go on. We're going to have the extra <laughs> time. <laughs> no, I'm we, sorry, we, guys. We I'm sorry, guys. You're <laughs> going to gonna <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna have to listen to the show. We're going to keep him here for. You have to listen to an extra bit yeah. on, on mm. the podcast. Yeah. Where you come from and your history is intimately linked to the ANC and how it has been part of the South African fabric post-94. And a lot of what you speak about is around project managing ideas that have been on the table and not properly or fully implemented. And I'm wondering why when you were inside this organization you were not part of propagating all of that. Why, why, do you need, why did you need to be outside the organization to push these things? What is it that you couldn't do on the inside that you think you can do on the outside?
0: So, so firstly, um, I left the government almost a quarter century ago, just to put it in perspective. So I haven't been close to those levers. Secondly-
1: Would you want to tell us why you left? Why, Why you went into private enterprise rather than being government. I think that's a part
0: Yeah, I, I was a DG for uh, that first term. I think we all have our own personal ambitions sure. and aspirations. And, and uh, Eric Malobi approached me. I held him in high regard. Remember, Cachisso was set up during apartheid as a development agency. And then it segued into uh, an investment trust to carry on uh, making money to fund development. So there was a, a link between where I came from and a mission. And that's why I went into Cajiso at the time. Okay. So the things that I'm talking about now, I've been talking about them uh, for many years. And in fact, you can go and read all of my chairman statements of the last five years. You'll see this, the same themes. So here I am sort of 24 years or so later, uh, outside of corporate institutions. And I can speak more freely about these topics, but I have been talking about them. it's not a new thing for me. I also haven't been part of party structures for a long time, so it's not like I've been inside keeping quiet right. so i haven't been part of of that for a very long time
3: so it's the macron situation for me
2: yeah, well, you know my my and my question stands mm. why why. Did you disengage? It was
3: 25 years ago, and I I do think that's a bit unfair to uh, to be pushing that. Because uh,
2: we're we're talking about, no, no, mm. it's not actually, because when you talk about needing change and wanting South Africans to be mobilized into doing something, doing something looks different in lots of different guises. Mm. And I'm asking about why you disengaged when you did and why you feel now is the right time to re-engage.
0: So so first of all, I have always frowned upon um, being in business and being in politics at the same time. You know, and in fact, that was a very profound influence again of my mentor, Eric Malobi, who said you must choose. Like that. You you conflate wealth and political power and then you end up in a mess. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So it was a very conscious decision for me, as part of that young generation growing up in Cajiso, to not be seen on political platforms and to work for the private sector in that way. Okay? We, we thought the way to contribute was if we were asked at the time to help on a board. I, I served as chairman of CSR, Anatomic Energy Corporation, when I was at Cajiso. Okay? Mm. But that was a... Those were um, science councils which is the skill I brought to that particular thing. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't in the room as such. Okay? In terms of where I find myself now, you know they say when the facts change, you must change your mind. It's become very clear that the journey that we are on is not a good one. Okay? And also the path that the, this party has taken is not a good one. And that has informed my decision. Uh, not to sit idly by, but to speak up.
1: Well, it's probably a good place to end it. Um, and I really, uh, I, I love hearing from the horse's mouth, so to speak. I'm not calling you a horse, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I do want to talk to you one day about the CSIR, and I want to talk yeah. about uh, the, the SALT uh, yes. telescope that you were also mm. involved in and the Atomic Energy Corporation, which yeah. is a disaster as well at the moment. We've never really bothered to pay attention to that but it's Mm. worthy of some attention because when you're dealing with (laughs) bombarding nuclei of atoms it tends to be kind of uh, dangerous to mess with it and we we seem to have lost our way on that front as well so i want to talk about all those things if you'll come in again some other time but for the moment good luck for the election i say this to everyone who's been in here change starts now you can find them on the internet you can find them on social media and everywhere else thank you canton thank you Pumi. Most especially, thank you, Roger Jardine. And to everybody who's sent in questions, comments, keep them coming. We will have uh, more of the political leaders that you want to hear from in the next couple of weeks and heading up to the election. This is The Burning Platform. We will see you tomorrow at 6 a.m. Cheers.
3: CliffCentral.com.